0: Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is once again, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Welcome to Christ the King. If you have your Bible still available and open from the reading, keep it there on that page so that you can follow with me as we move through this text. Last week, for those of you who are here, and for those of you who weren't, we began our study of Hebrews in these verses. These four verses are the introductory section of a sermon that our author has written. And if you were here, you may recall me saying that these first four verses are referred to, in fact, by a technical name in their role in the discourse. They are called the Exordium, which just means that they are a masterfully crafted introduction. It's designed to present and to frame the subject matter of everything that's following. And last week we saw, if you were here, that the pastor indicates immediately what Hebrews is about. What his sermon is about. It is about God speaking in these last days in the Son. We said the hero of the book of Hebrews is Jesus Christ. Today we learn it is because Jesus is the hero of history. We said last week the author's strategy is to fix our eyes on Jesus. In fact, to locate our entire lives in him because the author's purpose, if you remember, is to urge his hearers, his readers to perseverance, to continue in obedience, to have faith because, last item from last week, faith is the sole and sufficient response to the God who speaks in the Son. So, listen now to how one scholar summarizes the book, and you'll hear a lot of it. Quote, Hebrews is a sermon exhorting the members of a house church to persevere in a faith That corresponds to the word of forgiveness and cleansing that God has spoken in the Son. Which is really good, I think, and I'm going to say it again. But there's a piece there that was added from where we were last week. Here it is again. Quote, Hebrews is a sermon exhorting the members of a house church to persevere in a faith that corresponds to the word of forgiveness and cleansing that God has spoken in the Son. And that's moving us on a little bit from last week, because if Hebrews is about God speaking in these last days in the sun, then the most obvious question that you probably have is something like, okay, so what did God have to say in the sun?" What was the communication from God that we're to understand in the Son? What is it that we're supposed to find when we look at the Son? When we rightly comprehend who the Son is? When we consider what the Son has done? There's a single word answer to that question, I think. That is to the question of what it is that God has spoken to us in His Son. And the single word answer is salvation. That's what God spoke in the Son, in all that is true of the Son, and in the Son, and through the Son. Salvation. Salvation is contained in Jesus Christ. It's in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that we hear the word of salvation. I'm not reaching on that point. That's not Keith Ganser's summary word for what God has spoken in the Son. That's the author of Hebrews' word for it. Just look ahead if you have your Bible open to chapter 2, verse 1, which is the beginning of the first exhorting, exhortatory section of the sermon. It comes right on the heels of all that chapter 1 has to say about the Son. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, our pastor writes, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Okay, now if everything about the son that the pastor said in chapter one is true, then he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, and look how he summarizes what it is that we've heard in verse three. How shall we escape, he writes, if we neglect such a great salvation? see it? That's what we've heard in the son. It was declared at first by the Lord, our pastor says. It was attested to us by those who heard. Salvation is what God has spoken in his son, brothers and sisters, which means, and this is the key point of the morning, which means everything depends on knowing him. On knowing the son. The knowledge of Christ, Christology, for you theologians, Christology, the knowledge of Christ is inseparable from salvation, from you and I participating in salvation, from you and I experiencing the benefits of salvation. The scripture says that faith is what is required to receive salvation. And faith is, at bottom, a response to what God has spoken. Right? Paul says, Romans 10, verse 14, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So if you and I don't know who the Son is, We can't know what is the great salvation that God has spoken in his son, can we? And that means we can't have faith. Now, instantly, I expect that all manner of questions have come to your minds, your collective minds. Questions like, what is the great salvation? What does it accomplish? Why would God want us to hear it? What did the son do to accomplish that? Who is the son? Right? I mean, this is it, folks. This is the whole ballgame. We get this one wrong, and you might as well just sleep in on Sundays, because what we're here for week by week is to hear and to celebrate this great salvation and having heard it then to be attentive to it in our lives in such a way that we live by faith and tell others about it. So I've just said all that I've said so that I can hopefully make this one thing clear and that is it all starts with the sun. That's why we get what we get in verses 2b to 4 of Hebrews 1, the second part of verse 2 through 4, this is the pastor's grand summary concerning the Son. Listen as I give you, watch in the text, but listen as I give you my slightly amended translation just to show you the flow of the thought that's here. Verse 2 begins, In these last days God has spoken to us by His Son. It's the main thought we dealt with last week. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, who, being the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholding the universe by the word of his power and having made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, you hear that? I know I tweaked the English translation there because what I'm trying to draw out is that the pastor centers everything in these verses around the Son in whom God has spoken. And in fact, the pastor makes seven statements concerning, firstly, who the Son is, and then secondly, what the Son has done. And we're going to look together briefly at all seven of those statements. But before I try it, let me hasten to remind you that this exordium isn't trying to say everything there is to say about the greatness of the sun. These verses are here to set the scene. In other words, this is only the beginning. So if you feel in the course of this sermon frustrated by my lack of specificity on some points that will come up, just hang in there there'll be lots of chances to say things more carefully and more thoroughly than I can this morning. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the point here isn't so much in the details as it is in the grand picture of these verses. The author of Hebrews, hear me, the author of Hebrews is trying to situate us, brothers and sisters. And for us to be properly situated, we need to understand what's happening now, literally in these last days. If you've ever read Hebrews, you probably realize you heard it in the way I did my translation earlier. It is where these seven statements end in verse 3. That I think is critical to the way the author is going to exhort us to live by faith. And where his statements end in the, in the end of verse 3, and I'm just going to I'm going to connect verse 4 with the whole rest of the chapter, which I'm going to try and do all at once the next time we're together, believe it or not. Where his statements about the sun end in the last phrase of verse 3 is the pastor finally comes to the fact that the sun is seated. Enthroned in heaven, that's where Jesus is now in these last days. Now is the time in which the already enthroned Son waits for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Which means now is the time in which the salvation spoken in the Son meets us, it meets us in the Gospel. And the most important question in all of life is will we hear it? Will we persevere in faith? Now, let me develop, before we dive into these seven statements, let me develop one practical point here, because this sermon's going to get thick in a hurry if it isn't already. So, here my practical point that I'm making midstream. So at least you can hang on to this if you find the rest of it a little overwhelming, which I think we're supposed to in the beginning of Hebrews. Assuming you're a Christian, which is what the writer of Hebrews is assuming, so I'll do it too. Assuming you're a Christian, ask yourself a question. Is this the way you primarily think about the Son who is Jesus as you live your life? As you pray, especially as you pray, as you meet with temptation or persecution or you struggle to walk faithfully amidst discouragements and challenges and sufferings that come in your life, what's the most important thing you need to know? What has to be your fundamental point of reference? What's the context within which you make sense of your life and the world around you? If those sound like lofty questions for the beginning, they are. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across. And maybe this won't make all the sense yet, or a whole lot of sense yet, but Hebrews will make this clear, I think, if we stick with it. The thing you need to keep in the center, the thing I need to keep in the center of your heart's vision is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who even now sits enthroned in his resurrected physical body at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is now. And the pastor who wrote Hebrews thinks your everyday life of faith depends on maintaining that vision of the Son. That's where we're moving in the many weeks to come in our study of Hebrews. So now with all that said... (laughs) Let's look at how the pastor writes now concerning the son. I've already said, I see seven statements that are made concerning the son. I briefly noted that those will include statements that are about who Jesus is on the one hand and about what Jesus has done on the other. And some of you in the room may take issue with the way that I'm going to separate those categories. That's fair enough. But my initial thought is that the son does what he does because of who he is. So I'm going to present it that way to you. There are some structural things going on in these few verses, which allow me, I believe, to extract a couple of things out at the front to talk to them first, even though I'm not gonna go, so I'm not gonna go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven straight in the order of what's in the English. But I do it intentionally. I think it's what the author intends. I'm going to pull out two statements that are there in the middle. First, as I focus on who Jesus is. And those two statements are are the ones that come right at the start of verse 3. Now, you've got to watch your text now. Let me read them. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You could argue grammatically that that's really only one thought, Pastor Keith. But I'm going to make it two for the purposes of this sermon, at least. So here we go fundamental to everything the sun has ever done and is doing now and will ever do is this first statement, he is the radiance of the glory of God. That is true of the sun always and eternally. And there's an active sense to that, I think. It's not that the sun reflects God like a moon reflects the light of the sun. Not that. It's that the sun Shines forth, shines forth with the glory or the light of God himself because that's who he is. Does that make sense? Or as the Nicene Creed puts it, he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Note that it is the glory of God that shines in the sun. God's glory is simply God showing himself. That's a handy thing to keep in mind. You read glory all over the place in the Bible. It's God showing himself. It's God in the perfect majesty and beauty of his being. And so the chief metaphor, you know this, the chief metaphor in the scriptures for the glory of God is light. That's everywhere in the Bible. 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And so you know that when the glory of God makes its appearance in the Old Testament to signify the presence of God in the midst of his people, when the glory makes its appearance, it's often described in terms of light, right? It's the luminous cloud on Mount Sinai. It's the brightness seen at the door of the tabernacle when Yahweh used to speak with Moses face to face. It's the glowing face of Moses after he'd spoken with the Lord. I mean, you can find lots of examples of that all through the Old Testament. And then you come to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and it's the light. The light as he's with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because now how much more we know about God's glory because of the sun. In fact, I'd say without the sun, we'd remain in the dark concerning the glory of God. That's the precise point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, when Paul says, listen to this, when Paul says we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that remarkable? Or perhaps even more familiarly, familiarly, more familiar might be, John chapter one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. We saw Shekinah glory in the old, no one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You don't see God apart from the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, verse 3 of our text. Then comes the second statement concerning who the Son is. As the author goes on to say, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Now that word translated exact imprint, that's a technical term. It's used in literature outside of the New Testament. In fact, this is the only time it occurs in the New Testament. It's a term that's used to talk about a mark or an impression that's placed on an object, in particular on coins, you know, where they would press the image onto a coin. It comes to signify a representation, a reproduction So there is a technical sort of association here, but like all metaphors, this can be misunderstood. So be careful. The point here isn't that the coin looks like the die, but is separate. No, you see, the point of the metaphor is rather in the full correspondence, because you see, it's God's nature that is said to be exactly imprinted, right? It's not that Jesus looks like God. It's that in his relation to the Father, there is no deformation, but rather a repetition, an exact likeness of essence or substance or words just fail. Calvin says the substance of the Father is in some way engraven on Christ. Or to put it another way that you might find helpful. To see the son is to see the father. Jesus said that, didn't he? Just about as neatly as you could imagine. John chapter 14, verse nine. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. The sun manifests the person in presence of God, or as one commentator puts it, the sun is able to be God's historical self-revelation because he is identified with Yahweh himself. So I begin with these two statements of identity because I think they are beneath, if you will, the five remaining statements which trace a broad, if you will, chronological arc concerning the activity of the sun. God has spoken salvation in the Son. It is the Father's intent to save. And since the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature, it means the Son is going to be in perfect alignment with the Father's intention. I think that makes sense. So now I've got five things to talk about as we trace the rest of the text and look at the, the economy, if you will, of The son's action. So, the first thing now, the pastor says regarding this salvation, remember all that he's saying in the son is the great salvation. The first thing he says regarding this salvation is that the son is the heir. Now, I know this is not exactly an action of Jesus yet. But this is a natural place to start because sonship would usually imply inheritance. Of course, the son is the heir. Only note two critical things in this phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things, as it's there in the text. Note, first of all, that the Son is the heir of all things, right? Which is an important clue, because if all things means all things, then we're talking about a cosmic inheritance. The whole universe belongs to the Son. Who besides God himself could inherit all things. And that may seem obvious to you, but it's a significant point to make because already our author of Hebrews is doing this. In verse 2, he's already picking up on two key Old Testament passages, neither of which refer to God in their original context. But they're both significant texts in the course of Hebrews, so I'm just going to mention them. If you're a note taker, you can jot them down. They're coming up again as we go. The two texts in view in this phrase are, I think, Psalm 2, verse 8, and Genesis 17, verse 5. Now, Psalm 2, you may know, is about the Lord's anointed king, the one that he calls his son, which originally would have meant David, and then David's descendants after him. And you remember how of that son, Psalm chapter two, Psalm two, verse eight says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The inheritance theme echoing back through the scriptures. This then is also an echo of another text that I think is likely in view here, and that is Genesis 17, verse 5. Now, you may know that Genesis 17, verse 5, is where at the beginning of redemptive history, the Lord promises Abraham, I have made, literally appointed, I have appointed you the father of a multitude of nations. And we're just going to watch how the author of Hebrews runs through the Abrahamic inheritance and the significance of that as fulfilled in Jesus. The point is that here in Hebrews, the Son is invested as the heir in the biblical tradition of Abraham and David, but not simply of them. Because it's not just all the nations that the Son inherits. The Son is heir of the whole universe, The son fulfills beyond all expectation the promises that were made to David and then also before David to Abraham, which will be extremely important as Hebrews moves along. So that the son is the heir of all things, it says. And the other thing that I wanted you to notice in that one statement is about that word appointed. It says whom God appointed the heir of all things. And what that word appointed signals is that God made clear that this was his intention. That at some point, the Son, who was also God himself, would be heir of the whole universe. Only see what you think of this. As I read it, that suggests that God appointed his Son, the heir of all things, before the world began. Because creation is the next phrase at the end of verse 2, right? If you're the author, why do you write about God appointing the Son heir of all things before you write about all things being created? Well, I think, though certainly not everyone agrees with this, I think the answer is that you write first about God appointing the Son as heir in order to show that the goal of creation itself is the Son to say that the Father has always purposed that the Son should be the one in whom He creates and upholds and redeems the creation. And I know we're just in impossibly deep waters now. But this thought isn't unique to Hebrews. Paul says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, all things were created through Him, referring to Jesus, and for Him, Paul says. <laughs> The sun is the air. Then secondly, in my list here, the sun is creator. The last phrase in verse two, through whom also he, meaning God, created the world. The sun relates to all created things, the entire universe of space and time as its maker. Think about that. As you think about that, you should remember that this is a pastor writing about a Galilean carpenter who a few decades earlier was crucified as a criminal on a cross on a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. That God created the world through the Son means, of course, that there's perfect accord in will and in activity between the Father and the Son. Or to put it more simply, how about this? The Son is God doing God's will. The Son is God doing God's will. The Son enacts the Father's purpose in creating the world. Hear that? The Father's purpose in creating the world. Again, our pastor is not alone in the New Testament writing this, is he? John chapter 1, verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There is one Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Paul again, Colossians 1, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The Son is the heir, the Son is the creator. Thirdly, the Son is the sustainer. The sustainer, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews says. You could say by his powerful word. It's probably better. There are at least two ways to talk about that reality, to try and explain what that statement means. I think both are good. Both are true. I think the second one gets more at what Hebrews is about, but I'm going to go with both. In, first of all, connecting this to the Son as the Creator, there is a physical reality entailed in that statement. It is the word of his power that sustains the world. The material exists only by will of the divine. But that's not a passive concept. It's active. Paul says, Colossians 1, verse 17, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, having brought the creation to be, the Son enables it to continue to be. The sun preserves all things in their state as creatures who have been given the gift of life. You don't live of your own power. But, as true as that is, I think that in the context of Hebrews chapter 1, the emphasis is actually less on the physical reality as it is on the sun guiding, directing all things to their end. One commentator writes, the sun exercises present and continuous support and carrying forward to their end all created things. This would seem to be the emphasis of the powerful word of the sun here. His word brings about his will. That's the point. Meaning that there's a direction and a purpose in the universe, you see. The sun isn't merely the one who causes everything. He's the one who carries everything to completion. Literally, he bears it. What is the point of completion? You already know it. It's when the son will be the heir of all things, which he already is. But there's an element of him now waiting for that to be fully acknowledged and realized. The universe itself will be redeemed. But to get there, you see now where the author of Hebrews is leading us. The son who is the goal of all creation is the very one who carries it to its intended goal, which then entails fourthly here that it is the son who redeems it because he is the purifier. Big concept in Hebrews. After making purification for sins. Pastor writes The one through whom the world was made himself would make purification for sins. And Hebrews will emphasize that to do that will entail, of course, partaking, the son partaking of the same flesh and blood as the offspring of Abraham. That's the language that Hebrews uses. And we'll dwell on that point for a long time in a few weeks. But you sense in just just that quick phrase in in verse 3, that we've suddenly moved, haven't we? Something shifted. We've gone from this cosmic view of the sun now to the historically particular, the incarnation. Jesus born of Mary, a life of perfect faithfulness, the cross, the resurrection. Hebrews will greatly expand on the significance of the Son as Jesus making purification for sins. But already you see the thrust of it. Sin has to be purged. Creation has to be cleansed. Why? Because how else is the Son going to be heir of all things? He can't inherit sin. The eternal will of God is enacted in time by the Son who shares in flesh and blood. Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, By that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the cosmic history of Hebrews. Having done that, then we arrive now at the fifth and final statement that concerns the activity of the Son. And of course it is that the Son is the ruler. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The enthronement has taken place. Jesus knew it would. Do you realize that? Do you remember what Jesus claimed when he was brought before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem? The high priest said to him, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Those words of Jesus spoken and the pastor's words here in Hebrews have the same origin point, And you might as well hear it now. It's Psalm 110, the text that is the most often quoted and alluded to text in the Old Testament from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Psalm 110, and you'll hear a lot more about that psalm as we move through Hebrews. It was a psalm of David, and just thinking about David being the one writing it, here's verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, this is where we are now. Jesus, the Messiah, in the Gospels, was claiming for himself before his death what the writer of Hebrews says has, in fact, transpired. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He who was simultaneously the priest and the offering has been seated. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time. Until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It is finished, Jesus declared from the cross. Finished indeed. The right hand is the place of highest honor, the position of favor, of victory, of power. Paul writes, Ephesians 4, verse 10, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. For Christ to be seated at God's right hand meant sharing the Father's throne. He is indeed the heir of all things. He has only to wait for the final purging to happen. And for then him to be fully carried out. And we too now wait you see in hope of that day. And we walk in faith. Brothers and sisters, it's the whole ball game. Hebrews situates us within the story of cosmic history, you see. Because hear me, the life of faith isn't a matter of how Jesus fits into your life. It's a matter of how you in your life participate in his. Hebrews looks at you and your earthly situation from the perspective of heaven. How what else could you say about that? The Son is the one imminent as whom God speaks to create, to govern, to cleanse the world. Of course he is. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's the heir, the creator, the sustainer, the purifier, the ruler. Please stay with the pastor who wrote this challenging sermon called Hebrews. And this is what you'll increasingly come to realize, that it is that story that makes sense of your life. Because this is the way of salvation. Everything depends on knowing the Son. Do you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.